cool. So we're doing a series, the When in Rome. I was about to say the artifacts. We've done it for eight. Done that for eight weeks. It's still so ingrained into my head. Week nine. No, no, there's not nine. Um, so um, we're looking at the book of Romans. Nine is eight, not nine. So um, we are looking at Romans today. Today we're not actually going to get into too much of the book. Um, we're going to kind of get some background, some ideas, some some thinking, some thoughts, and some stuff nailed down before we get into the kind of spirit of the letter. Um, so. There's, there's a church in Rome. That's the first thing we need to know. He's actually writing to a legitimate church. This place exists. Um, the church um, originally was full of kind of Jewish Hebrew believers. Over a period of time, Gentiles, aka non-Jews, have started to come to faith in Jesus and believe in this gospel, and they've become a part of this group. Now, because there's this Jewish background and this Gentile background, both believing this gospel, they haven't come from it from the same page and they haven't come from it from the same position. They have unique perspectives of why they believe what they believe and why that is created buy-in for them and why they're surrendering their lives over to this. So for the Jewish people, they've grown up with this understanding of the law and the prophets of Eden, of all the artifacts, of everything that we talked about in the last series, all the things we've ever talked about, all pointing towards one moment, which is this Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ, and they believe that the whole of their scriptures, everything has been fulfilled in him, so they surrender their lives to follow after him. That's the Jewish people there. Now, for the Gentiles there, they're following Jesus for a very different reason. They don't know the history. They don't know about Eden. They don't know about the law. They don't know about the prophets. They don't know about any of that stuff. All they know is a catchy marketing term that has been battered around and that they've heard and that has created buying for them, which is why they've surrendered their lives to Jesus. They've surrendered their lives to Jesus for a very different reason. And in this book, what you have is you have a tussle between the two. So when Paul's writing this book, he's writing to one church with two very different sets of people, and he's writing a very fine line, like a tightrope argument between the two with a view to uniting the two camps. So that the friction between them would cease and that they would be united in one purpose, in one vision. One of the things that I've learned in church is as soon as people aren't united, as soon as they aren't on the same page, everything goes horribly wrong because ecclesia means a group that are called out for a purpose. Group people called out for a purpose. If you're divided on that purpose, you're not called out together for that purpose. So you're not ecclesia anymore. You're, you're something very, very different from the original notion of what you're meant to be. I've been in a church where I've seen... Um, even a pastoral issue split the church. So not even an issue of theology or an issue of identity, but there's been an issue where a particular person is in a really low-level form of leadership within the church, is living a certain way. Um, the leadership are debating how it should be dealt with. What does God's word say? What, is, how does, what does grace look like? How do we apply to this situation? And a couple of people in the leadership are upset with the way the argument's going. They've spoken to a few close friends of theirs who are outside of leadership. And they've just spread it out. And then before you know it, there's a new church a mile and a half down the road with 100 people in there that have all left there. And they're all upset about that. And they think they're the right ones. And then the other ones. And then friends are here and friends are there across a different line. Split, division, all sorts of problems, all sorts of heartache, all sorts of hurt people. And that's just from a small pastoral matter that was relatively insignificant. And I've seen that with my own eyes. This is much bigger. This is like theological understanding and the disagreements here are huge 
So if you've come with this Jewish perspective and you've understood this whole faith and you've followed it from kind of the beginning of its origins all the way through to its Messiah coming, you have buy-in not only on the Messiah but on everything that's led you to that point. Now, for those that are outside that have just come straight to this Messiah, you're kind of like, uh, well, hold on a second, guys. There's this whole road you need to travel along. There's this whole thing here. And um, Paul's trying to say, well, actually, you don't need to kind of travel that way, but he can't talk about it in a way too much where he's saying you don't need that at all because if he says that he's saying to these people that have come to it through this particular route that's all irrelevant so if he says that to them then they will reject it and they will fall away and they'll do their own thing and this group here will do their own thing so paul has to show that there's power in where they've come from and how that can be relevant to those who have nothing to do with it but not impose them under it so Paul's writing a really technical letter. It's like technical brilliance because he has to please both groups and lead them to a place of unity, which actually is much easier said than done. It's much easier to say that than to actually do it. So there's a culture clash. Now, for the Gentiles, if we are to read the first chapter, there's some little things that Paul says, little language, little rhetoric, which we just take as common religious language and titles. Whereas for the readers of this, they would know exactly what was being done here. So if we look at verses, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he's dropped, he's dropped some really powerful rhetoric. And there he's speaking to the entire group, but using rhetoric that the Gentiles will have bought into. Now, the Gentile people in Rome are pretty much all Roman. There may be some that aren't Roman citizens. Or there will be Roman citizens, but they won't be Roman nationality, or they might be for someone else. But for them, they have heard a saying again and again and again, and they've heard, Caesar is Lord. And their reason for buying into this Jesus and the gospel is very different from the Jewish people because Caesar had a huge army and they conquered nations and when they turn up at a nation they would say you need to say Caesar is Lord and if the people refused to say Caesar is Lord they put them on two sticks of wood and that's how they went about they went from nation to nation town to town place to place saying Caesar is Lord and what they were known for was Caesar was known as the Prince of Peace. Now we've heard that somewhere else before, Prince of Peace. And their marketing team in the Roman Empire had come up with this catchy slogan, which was peace through victory. So they were going nation to nation, town to town, and they were saying Caesar is Lord, peace through victory. And so for those inside the Roman Empire, it was like, we're bringing peace to the world. Um, actually, you're killing everyone that doesn't want what you have. Doesn't sound at all familiar to our world at all, does it? Totally different time. That's not happening today. All around the world. We're not still doing this same marketing scam and this same, no, no, no. We're, we're, we're far more intelligent. We're far more evolved. This, these scriptures are thousands of years old and completely irrelevant and don't speak to our time. But you know, excuse me for speaking about something so irrelevant. So their marketing team come up with peace through victory, Prince of Peace, and Caesar was known as Caesar as Lord. So they viewed Caesar as God. Now there's this homeless vocational Jewish rabbi that goes around, he gets put on these two sticks of wood, and then there's a resurrection story that this person who has not submitted to saying Caesar is Lord, but is killed being known as the King of the Jews, 
whose kingship places himself directly against Caesar, dies on a cross, and then there are rumors that three days later, this dude comes back from the dead, carries on spreading his message, prepares his organization, and then vacates to his kingdom, and no Roman centurion, governor, Caesar, emperor, general, or anyone can say where he is, where he's gone, and they can't verify it, they can't catch him, and he is not Osama bin Laden, he is not hiding in a cave, no one can touch this dude, he's gone. And they really want to touch this dude because this problem is spreading where they've heard that Caesar said, Caesar is Lord, you don't agree, you go on two sticks. This dude went on the two sticks, he died, he rose again, and now the people are saying, well, you know what, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord, and he is the Prince of Peace because he does not subject you to his army. He does not subject you to agree with him or die, but he lays his life down. He is the good shepherd, he is the good emperor who gives his life for his followers, who gives his life for his people. And so these Roman Gentiles have heard this message and they're like, oh, that's what a Prince of Peace looks like. That's what the Lord looks like. That's what the Son of God is in the flesh and blood. It's not Caesar. It's this dude who even Caesar's greatest weapon at making a signal to the people, look at your king, look at your leader. He would not say Caesar is Lord. And now look where he is. Do you wish to be as him? And the people would say, no, Caesar is Lord. Well, this people and its group of followers and its leaders, they all say Jesus is Lord. And even if you inflict that on them, they will gladly be crucified for this Jesus. So Caesar is all about he's Lord. He's peace through victory. Jesus is not taking it. He is giving it as a result of his sacrificial giving we become free. That's the gospel. Now, so the Jewish people have bought into a very different gospel message. They believe the same ultimate truth that both believe and are united in, but they've come at it from different places. They've come at it from very different angles, and they believed in him for very different reasons. Let me just chuck another log on. So they're believing in him for different reasons. And so when Paul writes this letter, it's a tricky letter. And it's very difficult sometimes to walk on that type of a tightrope. But God calls you and I to walk the same tightrope. He calls us to walk the same tightrope. And here's what I'm going to mean by that. So in chapter 1, he talks about his desire to long, longing to go to Rome. He uses some language, some rhetoric that creates bind from both sides. Um, and then he starts to talk about the, he starts to tap on the things that are going to unite them throughout the course of the letter. And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, the Gentile, to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he says the righteous live by faith. So he's putting it straight at the point of the gospel where they both kind of agree. Then he's going to try and wean the Jews this position where they're going to allow the Gentiles to do their thing but still be a part of it and for the Gentiles to embrace and see the, the beauty of the other side. So then he goes on to talk about righteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what we know about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So he's talking about the creation because they all kind of agree on this particular point. In the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There's no excuses. Whether you've seen the law, had the law or not had the law, it's been made clear in creation. So he's saying the truth of God stands regardless. So this is a great point and a great way of discussing and engaging with the Gentiles whilst also pulling the Jewish audience in. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to their lusts in their hearts, to impurity, to dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the, crea- the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave up them up to their dishonourable passions, and to them... It talks about the different roles and the exchanges and the way that they've engaged in certain actions which are not pleasing before God. And he's, so he's challenging the Roman Gentiles in, in this. And what he does by challenging them about their actions, their lifestyles, their behaviour, is he leads on to what he really wants to touch on, which is about the law. So the big question in the first three chapters is all about the law of God. The ultimate question is being... Are you right through obeying the law of God? Can you even achieve being right with God through this? Is that even possible? What does that look like? So he starts to talk about that all. Now, in verse 12, in chapter 2, what he starts to talk about is he starts to talk about judgment. And he talks about... um, He starts to talk about works. Um... He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So he's saying, okay, we need to start to be one people here. So he goes, you see yourselves as Jews, and you call them Gentiles, which means non-Jew. So you're set in these two different camps, and he's going, ultimately God's going to judge both of you. Yeah, he's going to judge you guys first. Yeah, he's going to judge you guys, but ultimately he's going to judge you both. So there's no impartiality. So you need to kind of get on the same page. You're trying to join them together. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So he's talking to the Gentiles here. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the Lord who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. For they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or, or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and light to those who are in darkness an instructor of foolish a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth you then who teach others do you not teach yourself 
while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must commit adultery, do not commit adultery. You who abhor idols, do not rob temples. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of, the, of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he's saying, well, it's great that you've got this point about the law. So he says to the Gentiles, you know what? You don't have the law, but you've been fulfilling the law anyway, some of you, because if you've been seeking to do good, you'll end up seeking to do the right thing from the law anyway. God's going to come, he's going to judge. Then he turns to them and goes, well, guess what? You guys have got the law, and you're telling these guys about themselves, but ultimately, you're telling them about themselves, but you're in the same boat as them anyway, because you're doing the wrong against what you teach yourselves. So ultimately, he's saying you're both in the same camp. So once again, all he's doing is he's talking at them both in the language they understand, and going, guess what? Regardless of which position you're in, you're actually the same position, and until you see you're both in the same position and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he goes, you're not going to get it. And you're not going to get it. And you're going to miss what this is about, about being together. He goes, for, circumci- um, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if the man who is uncircumcised keeps precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and the circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew or what? is the value of circumcision, much in every way. To, the, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, that, rev- which basically means that which reveals to us who Jesus is. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, everyone, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to sow that the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? No, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come so as people may slanderously charge us by saying their condemnation is just? What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. The way of peace they have not known. If you, talk, if you read through that and how that ties in with what we said about Caesar, you'll see how he's pitching this to both. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that ties in with the series we ended with. That through his blood, that through Jesus, through the sacrifice, through the propitiation. Precip- precip- ah. Propitiation. Man, that was a tough one this morning. Needed more caffeine to take that word on. But Jesus is there, that he has taken that place. And so Paul, in all of this, has gone through all... Oh, fickle. Alright, Paul has gone through all the back streets of both groups of people to point out you believe this, you believe this, your arguments this, your viewpoints this, but guess what? You're in exactly the same position because all fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean for you and I today? What it means is what we're to be united about. We're to be united about the most important central piece of everything that is is all found in Jesus, that he is the point that unites us. What it also means for us is we need to be aware, we need to be self-aware of ourselves, the position we're in, the culture we live in, and how they hear the gospel that we preach. What I mean by that is this. Depending on what church background you've come from, and depending how they've pushed the gospel to you, and depending on how you've received it in the place you've received it at, what we tend to do is we tend to, without thinking, without looking at the person in front of us, without seeing their situation, their context, their lives, their worldview, what they hear, what they see, we just push a blanketed statement of doctrine. Now that's great when you're speaking to a bunch of Hebrew people. So Paul here in this, in this letter, he's holding up the tension. So he's speaking to the Hebrew people that are there within this church to understand it, but he's also speaking to the Greeks, to the Gentiles to the Greek thinkers, to the Roman people. He's speaking to both. Now what we tend to do is if you've come from certain backgrounds of church, like I have, is we tend to just take one piece of narrative, one piece of doctrine, one piece of dogma, and we just repeatedly say the same thing again and again, regardless whether anyone that we're saying it to understands what we're saying. And it's about time we started to embrace and to think about different ways to engage, different ways to communicate. On the one hand, he's speaking to these Hebrew traditions to speak to the Hebrew listeners and audience within the, in the church. But he's also speaking to the Greeks. And he's also enabling them and connecting them where they are, where they're at, because he says everyone needs this gospel, whether you understand this law and accept it or whether you don't. All of us fall short and all of us need it. And he connects it so he makes it a plain leveler. All of us fall short. The one thing that you have, that I have, as we said about a year and a half ago at City Hill, was the one thing that every human being has in common is all of sin and all of fallen short glory of God. The problem we have so often is we want to push the message of a perfect Jesus, which is perfect because he is perfect, but sometimes we tend to realize we're forgiven and push a perfect Andy, a perfect Marvin, a perfect Claude, a perfect Christian, a perfect Cornelia, a perfect Jody, a perfect Eden, although she doesn't push anything on anyone yet. But we try and push these ideas and present this, look how great I am now that I'm a Christian, da, 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 whereas actually what the world needs is, ah oh, man, I'm fallen, I'm broken, and this is the Jesus that I'm still trusting to bring me through this next thing that I'm facing. And until we start to speak the language that the community around us is understanding, we can keep saying the same dogma and the same doctrine, and we can be saying this thing that is theologically correct, but our audience isn't listening. Jesus is Lord. And the reason they say Jesus is Lord is because Caesar is Lord. 
and that his kingdom is in opposition to that kingdom. And he says, you want to subjugate the people through threats and violence? I will lay my life down because I'm a good shepherd and I give my life to my sheep. And so the way they communicate it is to a Hebrew audience, but to a Greek thinking audience as well. And we need to do the same. Father, I just pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would see the areas in our lives where we repeat sometimes this Christian gospel message to people who don't understand it without thinking we just say the same statements again and again like a, like a broken record, just repeating round and round and round. I pray this week we would have the wisdom to see the person in front of us. We'd have the wisdom to see the culture in front of us. We'd have the wisdom to share our own failings. We'd have the wisdom to share our own inadequacies. We'd have the wisdom to share our own hope in you and how you are restoring us even as we speak. May we encounter your spirit now. May you empower us this week and may you give us opportunities to share this good news that is not just for us, but for every tribe and every tongue. Give us wisdom, Lord, and give us the words. And may we rely on your spirit to speak in Jesus' name. Amen.